The opinions and views expressed in Dead Men Do Tell Tales and all affiliated media are Jordan and Nicole's and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of their training program or others working in the field of medical legal death investigation. Hey everyone. Welcome to Dead Men Do Tell Tales. Forensic pathology podcast. Nope, a podcast about forensic <laughs> pathology related topics. <laughs> Start off strong. I'm Nicole Kroom. And I'm Jordan Taylor. And we're both pathology residents who are interested in going into forensic pathology. And I was talking to my aunt the other day who listened to episode one, which we finally released. And she made the point of we should say that we're doctors because I think a lot of people don't necessarily know a resident is somebody who's finished medical school and then you go through residency. So we're both MDs. Um, and I think just to point out that we do have that training and that kind of thing. Oh. Yeah. Some people don't realize that, which is fine. Make yeah. sure you guys know that we're somewhat legit. Dr. Kroom and Dr. Taylor. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah, I still can't hear that. But anyway, um, <laughs> today we wanted to talk to you about time of death because a lot of Media, TV, etc. tries to use these crazy cool techniques to determine time of death down to like the minute or hour or day, which is not 100% valid in all of those cases. And in doing that, we're also going to be talking a little bit about what happens to a person's body after they die. So just wanted to give you guys a heads up that we get into some details about that. And if you feel like you might be uncomfortable with that, we just wanted to warn you. We might give another little warning beforehand as we get there, yeah. but most of it's a little on the icky side. Yes, but first we wanted to start off with a couple definitions. Yeah, so when you think of time of death, there's a few different things that go into that. There's physiologic time of death, so that's the person's last breath, the person's last heartbeat, that kind of thing, when they physically stopped being alive. Then we have an estimated time of death. That's the best guess. That's, you know, you found a body that was heavily decomposed and we can say they probably died about a month ago or about two to 10 years ago. So that's an estimation. And finally, we have the legal time of death. And that would be the time that the body is found. So legally, let's say there was somebody who was found decomposed in the woods they find them today, right now. So their time of death is June 23rd at 7.32 p.m. But they're heavily decomposed, so they obviously didn't die right now. But their legal time of death is still going to be right now. Then their estimated time of death would be 2 to 10 months, but their physiologic time of death, we don't know. And Yeah, could be anywhere between those two. Mm-hmm. Very broad interval. Yeah. And then we have postmortem interval. That's the time that has elapsed since a person died. So if I died 10 minutes ago, my postmortem interval is 10 minutes. So when we talk about postmortem changes, it's the changes that have happened in the interval from the time they physiologically died until now. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. Excellent summary, Dr. Taylor. (laughs) Dr. Kroom. And then the first of our postmortem changes is what's called pallor mortis. So this is in the first 15 to 25 minutes after death. And this is what you see on TV where somebody has died and they show this person that's really pale because they're dead. So we're going to 
put a bunch of white foundation on them to look dead. Um, this is actually called pallor mortis. And it's because your capillary circulation has now collapsed. So all of the blood flow that was in your skin is not there anymore. And the blood superficially starts to sink back. So you don't have that rosy red colors in your cheek. So that's pallor mortis. And this would be helpful if the person died very recently. Mm. So if they died 10 minutes ago, they might still have the color in their cheeks. But if they died 15 to 25 minutes ago, that might now be gone. So it's helpful for the immediate postmortem interval. Oh, cool. Uh, I didn't know there was an actual name for that change. Wikipedia has all the answers. <laughs> Have to remember <laughs> to donate to them the next time they're having a drive. Every every time I see one pop up in the past, I would say five years or so, I've just been, you have, the, the, the medical school of Wikipedia did a lot of work <laughs> in there. Yeah. Uh, so the second change that we wanted to talk about is liver mortis. And that is also known as lividity or post-mortem hypostasis. So it's usually evident within 30 minutes to two hours after death, and it's this reddish-purple discoloration that's seen due to the settling of blood in the dependent parts, so the parts of the body that are closest to the ground, the dependent parts of the body following death. It also occurs internally, so you can see it externally as this discoloration, um, but then when you open up the body and start to do the autopsy, you can also see the blood settling in the organs, um, causing congestion in different places. Uh, And it will not occur if there's pressure on a vessel, so often you can see different impressions from things like clothing or the surfaces that a body is lying on. Um, And it's often occasionally mistaken as uh, bruising. And the difference is that bruising is hemorrhage into uh, the tissue versus what liver mortis is. It's the blood settling. Yeah. So pretty much once the heart stops beating, the blood isn't being agitated and those heavy red blood cells will kind of settle and they'll become like settle out of the serum and kind of, it's still within the blood vessels. If you've ever seen a test tube of blood, if it's just sitting there, you'll get this layer of clear yellow stuff at the top and this darker red blood cells at the bottom. So the same thing happens in your body. Yeah. And so in liver mortis, the blood is just settling down into the dependent areas of the vessels. And eventually, once enough time has passed, it can leak out into the soft tissue, which is additionally confusing for differentiating between whether it's bruising or this liver mortis. When it first appears, it it can still blanch. So if you touch it, then the skin can still turn back to its normal-ish color. But eventually it becomes fixed. So shifting of the blood no longer occurs. And that usually happens around eight to 12 hours after death. This is also around the time where the blood starts to leak out of the vessels and into the soft tissue. Liver mortis, while we do have kind of estimates for when it starts to happen um, and when it becomes fixed, it's actually best for determining if the body has been moved. So once somebody dies, liver mortis starts to set in, the blood settles in the areas of the body that are closest to the ground. But then if the body gets moved, it'll take a long time if it hasn't been fixed yet for the blood to move, or if it has been fixed, it won't move. And it can tell you where the body was originally and whether it has been moved to a new position. So like if the body was found face down and you saw the the purple red discoloration on their back, you know that they either died or after they were dead, they were on their back for enough time for the blood to settle. And then they were flipped over to their stomach or yeah. something. So you know somebody's moved them. 
Um, and then another thing that it's good for is the color can be different depending on the cause of death. For example, if somebody died from carbon monoxide poisoning, then it has this characteristic cherry red color instead of the reddish purplish color. Other causes of death, such as cyanide and extreme cold, can also cause that same cherry red coloration. Interesting. Yeah. If enough of the blood settles and causes rupture of the vessels, you can also see these additional changes within the area of discoloration, um, such as petechiae, which are these minute spots of hemorrhage. Um, or you can see these things called purpura, which are patches of more dark purple discoloration within the area of liver. The only other note that I had on that one is a lot of what we're going to talk about is going to have to do with the environment. In warmer conditions, apparently this happens faster. Temperature has a lot of effects on all body functions, including after death. Yes. The next one we want to talk about was rigor mortis. So liver mortis is the color and rigor mortis is the, the stiffening. So it's the changes in muscle stiffness. So if you've seen on... I'm sure there are comedy skits out there where they have the dead person, they try to move them, and they're stiff as a board, so they move as an entire unit. So that's kind of what rigor is the best. Rigor is that thing where your muscles stiffen for a period of time after you die. Um, So what the process actually is, when you die, calcium enters a certain part of the cell due to things starting to deteriorate, and it activates the actin and myosin which are two of the muscle the two of the proteins involved in muscle activation and so it activates those cross bridges and your muscles get stiff after the calcium enters the cytosol that part of your cell and it activates those cross bridges once you're dead obviously you're not getting any more oxygen in so your body isn't making atp and the thing that releases those cross bridges is atp calcium enters that part of your cell and these actin-myosin bridges link. Then because of death, you're not getting any oxygen and you're not getting any more ATP. And ATP is used to actually release those muscles. So they can tighten, but unless you have oxygen, those muscles won't release. Now, after after death, you can still get some ATP made via other processes, like glycolysis, which is done in the liver, So you still get a little bit, but once all of that fuel is used up, that's when you get rigor fully set in. And this starts pretty early in some of the smaller muscles. So in your face, your eyelids, neck, and jaw, this can start anywhere from five to seven hours usually. And again, temperature changes this as well, so it can happen as early as two hours sometimes. And then in your arms and legs, this starts to happen more in the 8 to 12 hour range. And the reason it takes longer for those muscles is because like your quads are much, much larger muscles than the tiny little muscles in your eyes and your face and your jaw. And then after about 48 to 60 hours, rigor breaks. Now, why does rigor break? This happens because the myosin heads, which are one of those proteins, are now so degraded that you have relaxation. So after enough time, the proteins degrade and they can't hold that tight protein cross bridges anymore. So now they're released. So that's in about 48 to 60 hours after the peak of rigor mortis. So peak stiffening of your muscles is about 13 hours after death. And then by 48 to 60 hours, those muscles are now loose again. Like I said, all of these processes are affected by heat and cold. So in hotter conditions, 
all of these are sped up. So rigor will set sooner and rigor will be released sooner. In cold, the opposite will happen. It'll take longer to set in and longer to release. This is also affected by age, sex, physical condition. The more muscle you have can change how quickly it can happen. So in small infants and children that have a very small muscle mass, it may not even be perceivable. Versus somebody that's really, really muscly, they're going to be really, really tight a little bit sooner. And then (laughs) there was an interesting thing that I read about, obviously it's not just humans that after they die, they get this this uh these crossbridges that get activated in meats that you eat it's also a similar process oh. so it's not good for to have that tighter thing in meat that you eat right it'd be really tough meat so they do this thing called cold shortening in meats that you would get from a butcher where they pretty much could have been cold really quick so they don't so rigor doesn't set in oh so it's, I don't, didn't look into this a lot because we're focusing on humans here, but there's a really interesting thing in the meat industry that I ended up re- going down the, the Wikipedia whirlpool in and talking about how ideally the f- meat that you get isn't actually super fresh. You want it. Yeah, I know. It sounds a little creepy, <laughs> <Nope>. <laughs> but it's actually better after it's been cold shortened for a while and some of the those cross bridges have released again. Oh. Because if you get it in that bad time frame, it's just going to be really tough, disgusting meat. So there's, and again, I don't know the full details on this. I'm sure I'm getting things wrong. But there's ideal amount of times after an animal has died and how that meat gets processed for you to eat a good cut of meat. Interesting. Yeah. That's that's actually kind of (laughs) cool. Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so science... Essentially, after you die, no more oxygen, your ATP can't break those cross bridges anymore, and your muscles get really stiff, and then after enough time, due to degradation of those proteins, they start to release, and of course, we use that in determining time of death, hopefully being able to figure out when somebody died. And the last thing I wanted to mention, that I wanted to throw at the end, because we don't have good scientific proof of this, is this thing called cadaveric spasm. Oh, yeah. Where the moment that somebody dies, they have this heroic moment and their muscles will stop in whatever position they were in right before they died. So if they're clutching a weapon to defend themselves or clutching at weeds while they're drowning and they come up with the weeds clutched in their hands, there was no actual scientific proof. There were a couple of things that I read over that pretty much said, we don't really have any good studies that show this. There's some times that it's been seen, but there's also times that it's not great (laughs) what do you mean not great like there is no well-controlled studies that actually show that this is a thing oh it's just there are some there have been several case reports there are rare case reports and that's it okay because i got a lot of my information from the forensic pathology atlas and the forensic pathology de mayo book and they both mentioned cadaveric spasm yeah so they both (laughs) cite examples of like right before death you just have this intense burst of physical activity mm-hmm. and so you use up all of your atp exactly. and then you die and your body hasn't generated any more and so that's why you get this sort of instant stiffening is yeah. what the thought was behind it so there's these five requirements in order for them to call something a cadaveric spasm matthias Fafli, it's a pf at the beginning of that one so i'm going to call it just Fafli. okay and dow weiler 
who are at the University of Bern in Switzerland, posted five requirements in order for a death to have been observed and classified as having a cadaveric spasm. One, the body part hypothesized of having undergone spasm must be freestanding against the force of gravity. So, you know, reaching up for those weeds. Um, the deceased must be observed before the rigor has developed. Oh. Because if rigor has already developed in the rest of the body, you can't say that that happened before, right. right? There must be adequate and continuous documentation of postmortem changes in respect to lividity. So again, just knowing that this was actually something that happened at that time and positionally it also makes sense. The scene must be undisturbed before the examination examiner looks at it. Again, with anything, you can't say it if you didn't see it. Right. Um, Somebody could have messed with the scene before you arrived. And the fifth being no third party may be present at the scene to ensure no man- manipulation of the body. Look Called at it. that! Um, so essentially there are no really good cases that are documented that work with all of these because in theory... Things could be, you know, if somebody isn't quite in Rigor yet, you can move a hand around a knife Mm -hmm. and put it there. And they could say, oh, they must have spasmed that that was their knife. And it's impossible to prove it. I see. And it's also very difficult to disprove it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Their argument is that we can't say that this is actually a thing and there has been no good evidence of this. I guess to that end, the only things that I had that I don't think you did were that in addition to things like ambient temperature, muscle mass, age, everything like that, also the cause of death can have an impact on how fast rigor mortis sets in. So as an example, if somebody dies from a massive infection, so and they're in sepsis, it's causing Mm. their internal temperature to rise, and that'll cause rigor to set in faster. So again, the heat thing in general, temperature. And then, as we mentioned with the cadaveric spasm, perimortem activity. So if somebody has epilepsy and they have convulsions and then they die, then they'll go into rigor faster because they used all of their ATP up when they were seizing. What if somebody just ran a marathon? And then had a heart attack if they would... Cadaveric spasm? Well, no, if they were just Riger fast. Oh, I, I would assume so because yeah. you know, they've, no, they've just had no a bunch ATP of left. activity. Um, and then like liver, Rigor is better for determining body position usually than time of death because there are so many other factors that can affect how fast Riger takes to set in. Mm-hmm. It can be broken and then it can reform, which yes. also makes it a little bit tricky for helping with body position sometimes too. So when we're when you're doing an autopsy, sometimes you have to move an arm or something to get clothing off, or on scene you might have to move the body to get them into the bag. So if Riger set in and you have to, let's say their hand was across their chest and you need to move it down next to their body to get them into a bag or something, you can break Riger, which is physically moving that arm down, and then depending on how much ATP has been used up and how much you how many cross bridges you broke. It can reform. The next one we wanted to talk about was algar mortis, which the colloquial definition I saw for it was post-mortem cooling in quotation marks. Interesting, because I never thought of it that way, but okay. Right. Um, Which makes it kind of a misnomer if you consider the definition to be post-mortem cooling, because the body temperature of a body equilibrates with the environmental temperature, so it can actually result in warming depending on where the person who has died is. Yeah, I always thought it was change in body temperature relative to like the ambient conditions. That is a better definition for sure. And in in terms of use for determining oh. time of death. Oh, what did you find? Al Gore does mean cold. Oh, okay. Chilliness. Yeah. Yeah, so totally a misnomer. Yep. Latin. Thank you, Google. 
Dr. Google. <laughs> our um, third podcaster, yes. Dr. Google. <laughs> Wikipedia is not our third podcaster. Oh, he, he, oh, Wikipedia he, has been supplanted by Google. I think Wikipedia might be... Well, maybe they could be like the three where you just list and like both is number three. Okay, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I agree with this. Three point A and three point one. So neither is put ahead of the <laughs> other. <laughs> I've never seen that. That's very uh, judicious of you. <laughs> I try. <laughs> so in, in terms of helping with determining time of death, it's not very good because we have these charts that we can look at um, where you take the body temperature of the body when you find it and then you look at this chart and depending on the ambient temperature you kind of can calculate how fast it would have taken them to reach that temperature but in doing that you make a lot of assumptions so one of which being that the body temperature at the time of death was normal um, and normal is considered 98.6 degrees Fahrenheit or 37 degrees Celsius if somebody died from something like I mentioned earlier a massive infection causing sepsis then they were definitely feverish before they died and so that's going to throw off your determination of time of death if you try to use algor mortis uh, and then it also assumes that a body uh, cooling cooling follows a progressive repetitive pattern which is not true there's so many things that can cause a variation in the way um, something reaches ambient temperature that false assumption and body temperature also varies based on the site where it's taken from individual to individual by time of day by activity and by health so you know if you're a chronically ill person then your body temperature might be you know significantly different than somebody who is a young healthy human yeah yeah and the other thing that i found important in this is nicole mentioned that it has to do with ambient temperature right so let's say that i murder somebody but i want to throw them off so i throw the person in a freezer and then i take them out of the freezer and i put them in a normal room temperature at that point isn't going to be helpful because they were cooled and then warmed and every room is different some places have ac some places don't some people turn on the air conditioning if the murderer is trying to be cute and smart they might crank up the temperature crank down the temperature in the apartment cute cute cute. <laughs> we can edit cute out. Um, there's a lot of factors that go into it. So in a perfect bubble where you have somebody that dies in a 70 degree temperature, humidity controlled room, and they were normal body temperature going in, have a perfect exponential decay down, you can calculate it, but the real world is not perfect. Oh, preach. <laughs> and the only other thing that, oh, other interesting things are clothing matters. If you're lying on a ground and your body is losing heat because the ground obviously will pull the heat out faster versus if you died by hanging, there is less thermal conductivity, so you're not going to get cold as quickly. Body mass, for that reason, also matters. Yes, yes. I would cool much slower than Nicole would. <laughs> much slower. Much slower. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and finally, with decomp, the body temperature goes up a little bit because those bacteria are working their little hearts out. And it does get a little bit warmer. So, again, not a perfect line. Cool idea. There are some cool studies out there, but nothing's perfect. Yeah. And one interesting thing that I read is that all of these early post-mortem changes can be seen in people that are still alive if they've had a long perimortem period. Like people that are in the ICU for a long, long oh, time and they're yeah. just slowly declining. Interesting. You can see some of these changes. Like, so like blood settling? Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. 
That's scary. It is creepy. Just rotate people just a little bit. Uh, yeah. I mean, you're supposed to anyway to prevent ulcers from yeah. forming. <laughs> oh, that's so sad. Yeah. But yeah. So those were all lumped into what are colloquially known as early changes, but of course this is all on a spectrum, and those all overlap by quite a lot. For algorithm, the rough change in an ideal world is you lose about two degrees Celsius in the first hour and about one degree Celsius per hour after that-ish. Very vague, not perfect, but that's kind of the numbers that I saw thrown out there. I see. Um, the next one is what a lot of people think of when people die is putrefaction or decomposition. So putrefaction is kind of the beginning of full decomposition. And <laughs> I think it was Wikipedia that said it was accompanied by a strong, unpleasant odor. Yes. And, and actually... I couldn't agree more. <laughs> I found this really cool graphic, infographic. Um, it's by Compound Interest, I think is what it's called. That's a but fun it's, name. it's an infographic that's the chemistry of the smell of death. So it's talking about all of the different molecules that make up that smell that is associated with decomposition. Ugh. So I'm definitely going to post that on Twitter. The website. Yeah. Oh, on Twitter? I'm going to oh, post okay. the link on Twitter. Cool. Yeah. Nice. And it'll be in our it'll be in our references for the day. Um, so about 36 hours in, the neck, abdomen, shoulders, and head start to turn green. Kind of what I characteristically think of as like a ring of green around the lower abdomen where the colon is, because that's where a lot of bacteria naturally sit in your body, and that's understandably where it starts. Yeah, and a, a part of your colon called the cecum is the closest to your skin. And that's in the lower right quadrant where your appendix is. Yeah. And so since it's the closest to the surface, that's kind of where the green starts and then it spreads. So step one is that initial decay. That's when the bacteria in the lower intestine begin to decompose and make the abdomen green. Then those bacteria start to grow throughout the body and they start to release gases, which can make it bloat. And that's when it really starts to get pretty smelly. There was one buddy that I had that had been left in a car. Oh, this is where it gets icky, guys, by the way. Things well, are starting to get disgusting. I guess it maybe have, for maybe, certain people, maybe For certain people, maybe already, but this is where it starts to get, when you get the smell in there, I feel like that's when, for a lot of people, they get their, hit their gag sensors. Yeah. Good thing this is a 1D type of show. <laughs> um, so we had this one person that had died in a car, and they had covered their car up with tarp somehow, and they died inside their car, but it was a hot day in New England, where there's also humidity. So this person was already a rotund individual, but with the bloating, the person blew up like Aunt Marge, where just like the whole abdomen, like the arms and and legs and head was less so, but the entire like abdomen and thorax kind of just like bloop, 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 bloop. And it was just all green. That was the single worst smelling body that I've ever had to assist with an autopsy on. So today I am drinking a couple of 21st Amendment beers the first of which was called sparkle which was spark ale it was a rose ale and i just switched to a blood orange ipa and because nicole isn't feeling great she has this adorable little mason jar shot glass that she is having a sampling of my beers from and very kindly not getting me sick i can actually taste this and i do not like ipas generally but i like this blood orange ipa Fruity IPAs are definitely are generally a good intro to IPAs. Yeah, I think I like them. For me, it's fruity IPA followed by hazy IPA followed mm. by all of the rest of the hoppy things that other people love. Hazy IPAs are definitely earning a solid spot in my heart right now. California hazy IPAs are very good. I mean, I am a California girl, so. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
being in Vermont for so long, I'm, I still love a good solid, like, hoppy hoppy IPA. <sighs> so good. It's fine. That's why we're friends, so you can drink a hoppy hoppy IPA. Shout out to Hetty Topper by The Alchemist. The best beer ever. Sad I don't get it out here, but I'll live. Unlike these guys who are now are getting putrefied, so. Right, yes. Um, back to putrefaction. <laughs> the best segue. <laughs> um, so once your bacteria start to grow throughout your body, they release gases and they start to bloat and cause that horrible odor. The next stage is called black putrefaction, and that's when things start to discolor and you start to turn black. And then you get butyric fermentation. So that's when your internal organs begin to liquefy and the body starts to dry out. The final step within putrefaction is mummification. And this doesn't always happen. We talked a little bit about mummification in the first episode, where in dry climates, because you just dehydrate very quickly, you have less of that bacterial decay and your skin can dry to being very leathery and you can become mummified. Again, certain climates, you kind of go from that more liquefied stage to just automatically drying out and again with all of these factors that change this are temperature and things that brought you into the dying process so if it's warmer you're gonna putrefy faster if it's cooler it's gonna take a lot longer there are some interesting things where people were found in glaciers or like icy mountains or that kind of thing years and years later that are very very well preserved because all of these processes are just stopped yeah, well, I don't know if you're caught up with My Favorite Murder, but one of the recent episodes, Georgia talked about all of the people who die on Mount Everest because it's climbing season again, mm-hmm. and there have been a lot of people dying this season. Um, but she talks about how, and I didn't know this, that along the trail there are bodies that are used as landmarks because yep. they are so well-preserved and they have their clothing, and so they're referred to by Oh, it's Mr. Green Mr. Boots is like one Mr. of the Green more Boots. famous ones, yeah. Note to self, don't wear a distinctive article of clothing when you climb Mount Everest. Uh, do wear a distinctive piece of clothing. Then people know it's you. But then you die and you're always used as a landmark forever. Well, I mean, you if you don't want to die, don't climb Everest. I mean, true. step one, don't climb Mount Everest. <laughs> step two, if you're going to climb Mount Everest, you want people to know where you ended up, right? I guess. Or unless you just want it to be a mystery. You want it to be a mystery. That's true. Yeah. I mean, that's really all about An drama. Enigma. All the drama. <laughs> And then we were talking about sepsis earlier. When you have that, you have a lot more bacteria. It's everywhere. You're warm. It's kind of the perfect concoction for starting to decompose a little bit faster. Yeah. The only other thing I wanted to mention on that was... Oh, two more things. The intestines go first, and then you kind of have liver, kidney, lungs, brain. And the last ones that actually start to decompose are... Kind of the male and female parts. So the prostate and the uterus are very late in that. Again, and this is general. If you had a UTI, it would probably be different. But prostate and uterus tends to be towards the end, which I found interesting. Yeah. And then one thing that is always hard for us when we're trying to look at things under the microscope later are the adrenals and the pancreas autolyze, which means that there were a lot of enzymes and proteins that are in the adrenals and pancreas that can break down faster and start to kind of eat themselves so those organs can decompose a little faster because you have a little bit of help from the enzymes that are there so those if you don't get a body soon enough you obviously you usually can't look at yeah microscopically 
Yeah, the two sources that I was looking at, they broke down decomposition into two processes. One of them was putrefaction, which is caused by all the bacteria, and the other one is autolysis, which is caused by your body breaking down Mm. itself from all of those things. Interesting. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah, so starts at about 36 hours, and it can take a long time. (laughs) There were two other things that are kind of interesting and can cause some confusion, one of which is something called purge fluid. Oh, yeah. So this is a fluid that forms during the decomposition process, and it can sometimes be mistaken for hemorrhage. And it's often a reason why a forensic pathologist will be called out to a scene is because they find a body and it looks like there's all this blood around them. And they're like, is this a murder? And then you come and you're like, oh, no, this is purge fluid. So it's fine if we don't call the police and start a homicide investigation. This is probably a natural death. And, you know, person's just far along. Um, And then another thing that's kind of interesting is marbling. And this is that greenish-black discoloration um, that happens during decomposition, but it happens along the blood vessels. So you can see the outline of the vessels on the skin. So that's kind of cool-looking. Is that terrible to say? It's It's kind of cool-looking. It's kind of terrible to say, but we're kind of terrible people, so it's fine. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So those were the only other two things that I wanted to mention as part of the decomposition process. So that's the smelly part of forensic pathology. And then once that smelly part ends, you get into... You get into, eventually, skeletonization. Um, Well, depending on the environment. Uh, We mentioned before that you can mummify, which is where the skin becomes more leather-like, and your internal organs are also pretty well-preserved. And it can happen in super hot and dry conditions, um, but it can also happen in super cold and dry conditions. Yes. As we mentioned. And then as part of the late, late decomp process, if you're in a damp environment, you can also form something called adipocere, which is also known as grave wax. Oh, yeah. Nope. You don't want to make a candle out of that? And adipocere is this malodorous, greasy breakdown product of fat that occurs in damp environments. Skeletization is the end of decomp. And with all of these things, the environment is the most important thing in Temperate climates, where you think of a lot of the U.S., it can take about three weeks to several years for the body to reach this stage. In tropical climates, where it's really hot and humid, it could take weeks. In the tundra, as we talked about with Everest, years, or it can never occur. The other interesting point with this is there's more than just the temperature and humidity of the environment. It also depends on what creatures are there. Mm -hmm. So if you have a bunch of animals and they come in and they're eating the flesh skeletonization will happen faster because the flesh is physically being removed. Yeah. So there are a lot of factors that go into it that you have to think of. The other interesting thing about this is, so skeleton, the the bone itself is pretty sturdy. But if you're in the right soil conditions, the bones themselves can be dissolved. So after about 20-ish years, the acids in the soil can actually dissolve the skeleton so you can go from skeleton to nothing being there and then in neutral soils or sand which i think of as like the desert right where you just see like the the animal with horns like whatever what happens to be there the 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 very white sun bleach trail yeah Yeah, Uh like the ox skull yeah you can see that can be there for hundreds of years so you can really get a wide range of it can completely disappear and be turned back into you know, the single atoms to the forever skeleton bleached white. And then the 
Next step beyond that, if those bones stick around, you can get into fossilization. So this is a natural preservation of skeletal remains. And this is generally going to be in the fine, dry, salty, anoxic, or mildly alkaline soils. And that converts the bones. You no longer have the calcium, or you have different forms of the calcium, and it converts the bone to minerals. And so you went from what we considered bone into a now fossil. And so that's kind of the end stage of if you don't disappear, you can fossilize eventually. And so kind of a last run through of the postmortem changes. About 15 to 20 minutes in, you get the pallor mortis when everything looks pale and white. About one to two hours, you get the early signs of lividity where the blood is settling. Early signs of that. About two to five hours, you'll get the clear signs of lividity. You'll get more blood settling. About six to ten hours, you'll have fixed lividity. That's where you can't push it and it doesn't go away. Somewhere in the five to seven hour range, rigor mortis, which is the stiffening of the muscles, begins in the face, eyes. Eight to twelve hours, we're going into the arms and your legs stiffening. About twelve hours in, the body, if it was in a cooler environment, will cool to about 25 Celsius or 77 degrees Fahrenheit externally. That's 12 hours. At about 20 to 24 hours, the body will have cooled. Again, we're assuming cooling here to the ambient temperature. At about 24, rigor mortis has disappeared. So that's the stiffening is now gone. And then about 36 hours, rigor has completely disappeared. And then in that 36 to 48 hour range, you start to see some discoloration for the beginning of decom. And from there, it's a lot more poorly defined, so I'm not gonna go into it, but those are the early signs from about one hour to, or 15 minutes to a couple days in. And those are kind of the more well-accepted things that we look at, but there are some other studies and other things that you can use to add in to get your estimated time of death. Uh, So one of the things is other body fluids. So one of the samples that we often take is we take the fluid from within the eye. It's called the vitreous humor. So we'll take that using a syringe and we can analyze it, um, perform like toxicology studies on it or look at the different electrolytes within it. So if you look at the potassium within the vitreous, there have been some studies looking at how you can calculate the postmortem interval from the potassium level. But the reason why this doesn't work is that potassium in the vitreous humor increases with decomposition. Therefore, anything that accelerates decomp will accelerate potassium accumulation. So it's not a very good estimate. And there were some studies that I saw that, you know, within a couple hours they were okay, but really above 36 hours, it wasn't great. And the other downside of that was it's really expensive because all of this was done, the studies that I looked at were done with mass spec, Um. which is not a cheap test. Um, Another body fluid that we often look at is stomach contents. So you can look and kind of be like, well, if you know when their last meal was eaten, how long has it been since they've eaten, you know, I ate lunch with my friend an hour ago and now they're dead. So you can see some of them. Essentially, the food takes about two to five hours to get through, sorry, two two and a half to six hours to get through the stomach. So at about zero to two hours, you'll have food in the stomach and it might be semi-digested. So you can still see peas and carrots and you can see identifiable food. About two to six hours, you'll see material in the stomach, but it'll be semi-digested and not identifiable anymore. 
and then more than six hours, there will not be any food in the stomach. And these are all generalizations. These are not perfect, but these are estimates. And of course, a lot of things change this, right? So food consistency. If it's something that's really thick, it might take longer. If you had a smoothie, it might go through a lot faster. Stomach motility. Every person is different. Some people digest faster than others. The environment and the physiologic actions. If the fight or flight thing, right? If you need to run, your body is not going to put a lot of effort into digesting that food in your stomach. You, I mean, sometimes you throw it up. In that case, it might be longer from when you ate your food till the stomach empties. And the other important thing from stomach contents is the food that's there, right? So if I can identify something, well, can I identify a pill? Can I identify a pill fragment? Is they just took this pill and I can tell that it is a Valium. Usually you can't tell that, but you can see the pill fragments and then you can then run those pill fragments in whatever your test of the day and figure out what they had taken. Maybe most of them got dissolved and some of them didn't or they it wasn't working. They tried to to kill themselves. They took some pills, but they didn't weren't dying fast enough, so they took more. But then the first round kicked in, and they still had some pill fragments in their stomach. There's a lot of factors that could go into this, but the actual items in the stomach can also be important. So again, not a perfect system, but it is something that we look at. We measure the amount of food, the amount of liquid in your stomach, and if we can identify material, we often say what that is. So again, if you have nothing else, and somebody said they had lunch with the person an hour before they died... Maybe it could help. And if they said they had dinner with them an hour before and there's nothing in the stomach, either they threw it up or they were lying. Uh, so the next one I have is insects, which has actually been shown to be one of the most scientifically reproducible methods for estimating the postmortem interval based on the sources that I was looking at, uh, especially in cases of badly decomposed bodies that have been infested with insects. Usually when insects are involved, it requires expertise from a forensic entomologist to come in and which we'll do an episode on because that's a really cool topic yeah yeah which i know very little about and would definitely like to learn more about greed so a forensic entomologist can come in and uh, look at the different species that are present on the body um, and based on their knowledge of those insects they can kind of estimate when the body at least got to the location that it was found in Uh, and there are different types of insects so there are the necrophagous insects and those are the ones that feed on the body so they show up first to the body so if there are a bunch of those um and none of the other types of insects you know that the body has been placed there or more recently more recently yes um and then the next ones that show up are the predators and the parasites and these are the ones that feed on the necrophagous insects and then the last type of insect that shows up are the omnivores which are the ones that eat Anything and everything. Hashtag me. I didn't think about the bugs that came to eat the first bugs. Yeah. I I mean, it makes sense. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah. Oh, great. I know that, I know that this, I know my food will be there because they love that smell. So let's go eat my food. Yep. Yep. So based on those different types of insects that are around and the different stages of the insects. So if there are a bunch of larvae, but there aren't any adults, then you can kind of guess that the body hasn't been there for that long. Versus if there are one type of a species at many different stages in its life, then you know that the body's been there for a while. So it's pretty cool. And it's awesome that it's been shown to be scientifically reproducible. Yeah. Since a lot of this stuff hasn't been shown to be reproducible in the field. A cool one that I saw was looking at oral bacteria. Again, there's no significant long-term studies on this one yet, but they looked at people when they died, they would swab their mouth 
and then they would do it every couple of hours after they've died oh. to see if their oral bacteria has changed over time. And they actually, within those people, did find a change in oral bacteria over time. But there's, again, with all of these, there's a lot of variability. It's like, what is your baseline oral bacteria? And they found that it varies a lot based on location. So where you grew up, what food you're eating, it all oh. can totally change. But they are starting this research and it seems like something that can be very specific and quantitative because we have some really good studies or really good ways to quantify bacterial RNA. So how much would that cost though? That doesn't sound like a thing that most... bacterial RNA tests are getting cheaper though, because they're starting to go into that a lot in the hospitals, right? Oh yeah. With those like mass sequencing things. So exactly. That they can tell what a person has so that they can target the antibiotics. Yeah. And so they stuff. can do yeah. it based on serum, right? So you just need some blood and you can run the serum. And so this is, you know, using oral bacteria. So a swab to get that, but it's another option of a way that you can, maybe eventually we can tell how a person or how long a person has been dead based on oral bacteria. Two other studies that I found that were kind of cool. Um, were looking at teeth. So if you look at teeth under the microscope based on histologic changes, so the changes that you can see at the cell level, at the microscopic level, um, you can determine time of death based on uh, certain changes that you can see, which is kind of cool. But we also don't learn how to look at teeth during pathology training. It also takes... The issue with teeth is there's so much... They're bones, right? They are a really, really thick bone with dentin, which is particularly thick think particularly thick so it's really really hard (laughs) (laughs) it's It's difficult for us to look at those under the microscope because calcium in bones you can't cut the sections thin enough without it fragmenting so we decalcify tissue before we turn it into slides to look at under the microscope and because there's so much calcium in teeth, it takes a very long time to decalcify them. So we tend to not look at teeth under the microscope. It's just one of those things that if you throw it in decal for a very long time, you can eventually see it. But usually it's so long that understandably the doctor that did the procedure wants the result. So we usually can't look at teeth under the microscope. This one's kind of common sense. When you're trying to determine time of death, it's more than just what you see in the body you have to look at the whole scene. Yep. So do they have a watch that was an analog watch, I should say, that was broken and it's stuck on that time? Do they have newspapers building up and the most recent one was this time? Do they have mail piling up in their mailbox? When was the last one? Do they have a computer? When was their last unread email in their inbox? Kind of just some of the like down to earth detect quote unquote detective work yeah. of figuring out time of death is really important. Of course, we haven't talked about that because we're focused on the body part, but That's some of the most important information that you can get in a death investigation is stuff from the scene. Yeah, that was the old method that I had last because that is the one that is often the most accurate. (laughs) My bad. Yeah, no, no, no. But yeah, it's often the most accurate. The scene markers. Yes, scene markers. In summary, determining time of death is not as accurate as what you often see on TV. There are some things that are very accurate, but most things are surprisingly inaccurate. So often forensic pathologists or the people doing the death investigation will give a range and the range can vary dramatically based on how long somebody has been died. So the longer you've been dead, the more inaccurate 
What did I say? <laughs> Somebody has been died. That's <laughs> why it was really good. I loved it. I tried not to react, but I couldn't. <laughs> So the longer somebody has been dead, the more inaccurate our time. <laughs> no, get out the reset. Good. So the longer somebody has been dead, the more inaccurate our estimate becomes and the wider the range typically becomes for our estimate. And that's when we really go to a lot of these scene markers or other things that you're looking at that can be a lot more accurate than what we as a doctor can tell you from the body itself. And there's a lot of cool studies that are out there that are trying to be more accurate, but a lot of those are, again, in the shorter term interval rather than the weeks, months, years interval that will likely never be able to be answered. But We'll see. We'll, we'll see, see what the future holds. So thank you guys uh, so much for listening to our episode. If you like what you heard, please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. The more ratings and reviews we get, the higher we get bumped up on the iTunes list and the more people know about us. And if you want to learn more about the show or see the resources that we used, you can visit our website, deadmendotellpodcast.com, where we link to all of our sources in our episode guide. On Twitter, you can find us at, at deadmendo. And on Insta, we're at The Dead Tell Tales. And you can also find us on Facebook at Dead Men Do Tell Tales Podcast. And finally, feel free to email us with any corrections, suggestions, updates that you have at thedeadtelltales at gmail.com. Or you can email us through the website. And our opening theme music was Introducing the Pre-Roll by Lee Rosevear, who you can find on SoundCloud. So thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed our one of our slightly more disgusting episodes on time of death, if you made it all the way to the end. Which is saying something, because the topic of this podcast is forensic pathology. That's true. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, murder. Let's <laughs> <laughs> take that out. <laughs> Do you need to be worried? No, you're good. You're safe. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so yeah, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed. And we won't see you next week. (laughs) And we'll post another episode in two weeks that you'll hopefully enjoy just as much. Thanks, Thanks guys. Bye. Bye.